If you remember where we are chronologically, you know that Paul has been imprisoned in Rome. Uh, he, he will end up being there two years. This is the first imprisonment. Uh, and while he is imprisoned in Rome, he writes four letters. Uh, two go to the city of Colossae. One is to Philemon himself, who is one of the leaders in the church in Colossae. And he, the church meets in his home, actually. Uh, and the other is the letter of Colossians. He also writes the letter of Ephesians. Those are very close letters. As far as their topics, they just deal with the topic from a different perspective. Ephesians deals with the topic from the perspective of the church as the body of Christ. And Colossians deals with it as Christ as the head of the church. So we're approaching the same topics from different perspectives. The letter of Philippians is uh, also a letter that was written during that, that time of imprisonment. And the cause of this letter is that there's a person by the name of Epaphroditus who is from Philippi who has made it to Rome and in the process he's become very sick by the way and Paul has helped with that but he has helped Paul too in two ways one of which he has encouraged Paul with the report as to how things have been going in Philippi but the second reason is because what he has brought with him is support from the church at Philippi now obviously that could be numerous things money it could be different types of food it could be clothing that he might need it could be a lot of things but the point is they knew him they knew what he needed and they provided that and so as soon as Epaphroditus is well enough he sends him with Timothy to take this this letter back and let them know uh, you know what he is what his condition is and what he is desiring of them and the letter is dealing with the topic primarily of being able to rejoice and to have proper unity now today as we finish the book we will see what evidently is at least a part of the cause of whatever division does occur in the church or does exist in the church in Philippi, and we'll see him seek to overcome that. He's already talked about how they need to be one. He's given examples, his own example. He's talked about Epaphroditus' example. and So now he's just trying to get them to, to that place. Uh, one other thing before we begin reading again. Do you, know, uh, do you know any of the people who are in the church in Philippi? Do we know any of the people who... Have been in the church in Philippi or still are? Do we know when the church began in Philippi? You don't have to give me a date. I'm talking about events. Okay. What happened was when they got into town, they had met out by a, a river. And there were some women out there meeting for prayer. And Lydia was converted. And then they're arrested and thrown in prison. And throughout the night or sometime during the night after a, a miraculous earthquake, they converted a Philippian jailer, Right? So we know the background of where this church began, we know what was happening, and we know now where they have ended up. So chapter 3, let's start in verse 1. Finally, so see, now we see him changing kind of subjects. He's not doing a connecting word there. He's, he's getting into some practical application to what he's already talked about. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, I'm going to stop there. That's not the end of the sentence, but we'll pick that up again in just a second. So the first thing he says in this second part of the book is rejoice. And what he's going to do is he's going to present to them the way that that happens. How do you get to the place where they could be the family that they're supposed to be united, the, the way that they're supposed to be, and rejoicing the way that they want to be? And so these are some of the things that will help them to accomplish that. And notice right there where he begins is that he's got to remind them of certain things. Has that ever happened to us? 
Do you ever, uh, you know, do you ever have an experience or something, a study or something that causes you to be motivated to change and you work hard at it, but over time it kind of just slowly goes away until you find out you woke up and you're in the same place? Mission trips are good for that. You go on this, several people are going to this mission trip and to Peru in June. Uh, if, for those of you who have not been on one before, it's going to change you. It's going to change you. And when you come back, the challenge is going to be how long does it take for you to go back to who you used to be? Or how do you build on becoming the person that you changed into while you were there? We forget. We go down to places like the, the mission field and we see what's happening and we all of a sudden realize how blessed we are and uh, the opportunities we have and, and, and it builds us up and then we go back to those places and those opportunities and we go back. So Paul is saying, look, I've already told you all this information. I've already told you about how to be rejoicing. I've already told you about how to be united. But I want you to realize that I'm doing it again. And it's not, you know, it's not hard for me to do it again. Didn't Paul preach pretty much the same lesson everywhere he went? So it wasn't hard for him to do that. That was a pretty common thing. But to repeat it to them was important because they needed to be reminded and they needed to grow. So he says, I'm going to remind you again of these things that you already know that you need to... uh, to be accomplishing and the first thing he says and remember he has started this with the idea of rejoicing and the first thing he mentions about it is dogs evil workers and the mutilation well that's not very positive positive. and he's telling them to to rejoice you would think he's going to tell them good things right well sometimes in order to rejoice you got to get rid of the bad things it's not always just about what's positive. Sometimes you've got to get rid of what's dragging you down, what's negative. And that puts you in a place where you can rejoice. So he starts out with these people who are around them, some of whom have connected themselves to the church, by the way. That happened everywhere with false teachers and things like that, and the divisions that occurred and things like that. But he says, you know, what's going on around you needs to be forgotten about. Don't let that drag you back to who you used to be and what you used to be. And the mutilation there is significant because of this. I, I read the next verse because it sets the context for mutilation. When you read mutilation, what we like to think is the people that were involved in like asceticism. I've talked about that before. It, it's what became, uh, you know, the lifestyles that people lived in the monasteries and things like that. There were people who would, who would decide that, what I could do is the more that I punish myself physically, that makes me more spiritual. And so I'll sit in a barrel of oil for 30 days and that's going to make me spiritual. Or I'll flog myself every day at a certain time and that's going to make me more spiritual because the flesh is sinful. And so we read that, that word mutilation, and we start thinking about those people. But that's not who he's talking about. Look again at verse 3. For we are the circumcision. That's the mutilation he's talking about. See, once the, a part of the old law was that on the eighth day, every male that was born to Jewish parents, on the eighth day, that male had to be circumcised, right? That was a part of identifying them as the Jews. When the day of Pentecost occurred and the gospel went forth the first time, what we're told in Colossians 2 was that Christ had nailed that law which was against us, which was contrary to us, to the cross, right? And the Hebrews writer says he gave this New Testament wasn't in effect until after the testator was dead, right? So the gospel goes forth on Pentecost, removing this old law, and what comes into place is not that physical law, is it? And so they don't practice circumcision any longer, right? 
But have we seen, as we saw, especially in the book of Acts, especially with uh, Paul and these missionary journeys, and he has to go back and report to Jerusalem and all that, haven't we seen conflict with the Jews everywhere they went, and the primary thing they kept dealing with was circumcision? And there were other problems, but that one was pretty much everywhere. And what they were saying is, the Gentiles, okay, it's okay for them to be a Christian, but we think they ought to be Jewish Christians, so they need to be circumcised before they can be right with God. And what he's warning the Philippians here is, you need to beware of those people. Why? Was there something wrong now with circumcision? It wasn't. But what happens is, when you do something and mind it as God's law where it is not God's law, you bring yourself into bondage to something that's not God's law, you're going backwards, not forward. So that, that the, the Jews who were around them, who were saying, look, we've got no problem with you people being Christians, but you need to be Jewish Christians. He's saying, you need to beware of those people. Because they're taking you into a bondage that you don't, you don't need to be a part of. Now let's read that verse again and keep going this time. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. That's talking about the New Covenant. So he says again, Rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Now stop there. They have no confidence in the flesh. Does that mean they shouldn't trust themselves? Is that what he's talking about? Stay in the context. The flesh had to do with that law. That law that included circumcision. Why in the world were those people who stood up, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all those people who stood up and challenged Jesus, why in the world were they as powerful as they were? Is it because they literally were better than everybody else? Why was it? They had lineages. They could trace their lineage back. Their ancestral records took them back to whoever, whatever line developed under uh, under Israel with Jacob's sons, right? So they traced it back and that made them important. They had certain jobs and certain responsibilities. And some of them they considered higher than others. So these people are up in front of everybody because they said, my ancestor is so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and yours is a little less than that. So their confidence was, remember when Jesus came to them and they said, they challenged him and said, he challenged them, said, you're going into bondage. And they said, we are Abraham's seed. We'd never been in bondage to anybody, which was a lie, by the way. They were in bondage when they said it. But uh, their point was, we are who we are because of our lineage, right? That's where their confidence was. So what he's saying to them as he writes to the brethren in Philippi is the way that you rejoice is not in connecting back to some kind of an ancestry, but by the person that you are in Christ today. So let's read the rest of that sentence now and keep going. If, he said, I, I, I may have confidence even more, if. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, what's that? That means his parents followed the law, right? Okay, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he is an Israelite, but more specifically, he is of a line of Benjamin. Why is that? What does that mean? Hmm? To who, though? Why is it important? Why is Benjamin better than Simeon? Benjamin was the tribe of the kings. Judah, Judah is where he came from. Benjamin was the tribe of the kings. So he says, I'm not only of Jewish lineage, I am of royal Jewish lineage. So you want to brag about the flesh? Well, let's, let's measure this up. Okay? 
a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What is that? Let me ask you this. So we've got, did Jacob have wives or a wife? Huh? Who? Yeah, two wives, didn't he? Rachel and Leah, right? And two others, two concubines. There were four, weren't there? So what happened was his father-in-law, you remember his father-in-law Laban fooled him when he was going to marry Rachel and he got Leah instead. And then he married uh, Rachel seven years. He got to work seven more years. He married Rachel. And the problem is Rachel couldn't give him kids. And so then we have handmaids coming in and we've got kids born all over the place, right? Okay. But the thing is, a Hebrew of the Hebrew is somebody who is not a handmaid's lineage. A Hebrew of the Hebrew is a wife's lineage, specifically Rachel. She's the one that he loved, right? So he says, look, let's compare pedigrees. That's the way I would say it. Let's compare pedigrees. Uh, let's see. My parents followed the law. They did it for me. They circumcised me on the eighth day. Uh, on top of that, I am not just a Jew, but I'm a royal Jew, tracing my lineage through Benjamin. On top of that, because of the fact that my lineage comes through Benjamin, that means I am the descendant not of a handmaid who kind of was a substitute, but of a wife. So you want to compare? Keep reading. Exactly right. They were the favorites. You're right. All right, so keep going. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. So now what's he added? Tell me who the Pharisees were. They were the top dogs. That wasn't because they were better. It's because they had a lot of power. They set the example for everybody else. Now, Jesus pointed out how fake it was, how hypocritical it was, but that's not the way Paul's using it. He's saying, I was the strictest according to the law. Keep going. Concerning zeal, persecuted the church. Why was he going? Why did he have Stephen stoned? Why is he going to Damascus? Because he is so zealous. He's sincerely doing what he believes is God's, God's according to the law, right? Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. So he's saying, look, I was not the person that, that everybody could look at and say, yeah, he's all fake. Everything that I did from my pedigree to the choices I made was the best that I could possibly be. So if you want to compare things because you think you're so important you can measure up with your lineage and all that, compare against me. Now, is, is he bragging? Keep reading. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, that's all the things he just listed, these I have counted lost for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Stop there. Not the end of the sentence, but we do want to stop. Here's what he said. As far as the world's concern, where I was, not only was I at the top, but I was going higher. I had everything, everything that you want, I had, and it's all gone. And why is it all gone? Because somebody took it from him? Because he gave it up. Why would he give it up? Let me ask you a question. Is $100 valuable to you? It's worth $100, right? Okay, so if I said to you, listen, I have a 
ink pen. Uh, it's a really good Bic ink pen. And I'll sell it to you for $100. Anybody want to take that? No? Because the $100 is worth more than the ink pen, right? Okay, what if I say, listen, i got a car, brand new car. I don't really need it. I'll take $100 for it. You going to buy it then? Because you think it's worth more than the $100, right? That's what Paul's saying here. All these things that you look at and you think they're worth all of this, I gave all of it up because it really was worth this. And what I gained was worth more than you can possibly imagine. How, did, how could a guy be so abused, so beaten, so arrested, attacked, people go on a hunger strike to have him killed, he's shipwrecked, he is snake-bitten, when he gets to town he's a prisoner, and they're not letting him go for two years? How in the world is that guy a guy who can say, oh, rejoice in the Lord always? Because none of all that, none of that other stuff mattered. <laughs> not when you compared it to, uh, this isn't the right way to say it, but not when you compared it to the $100 bill. Compared to what God had given him, all that physical stuff didn't really matter. Okay, let's start that sentence again and go to the end. Well, we'll just start in verse 9. And be found in him not having my own righteousness. So he says, I'm not, this is not about me being perfect, which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's talking about the new covenant versus the old. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So this is all about the fact that Jesus was resurrected, wasn't it? He is the Messiah. Which, by the way, was that's what the law was, was telling him, wasn't it? So he is resurrected, and so Paul says that assures my resurrection, but the only way it assures it in a positive sense is if I'm with him. That's what he wants to attain. Okay, I want to hang on to that word attain and read verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So he says, I want to go so that I can attain this. I'm just doing the English right now. That I can attain this, but it's not like I've already attained. Okay, if you look at it and you say, those are the same words, and they are in the English, right? If you look at him and you say the same words, he says, look, I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. It's not like I've already attained it. Well, obviously he hadn't already died and resurrected, right? <laughs> Paul hasn't died yet, has he? So that can't be the same wording, can it? Nor can it be what he's talking about. And it's not. That first word has the idea of arriving at something. That second word has the idea of holding on to something. Those are different words. And the point that he's saying is, I want to get to the place where I am with God, the way that Jesus wants me to be. I want to be the person who is walking with him, the one who who will be saved by him and ultimately resurrected by him. And what I have already got, what I've already grasped, is not that person yet. But I am going to grasp onto what I am now and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep running this race. I'm going to keep going forward. I am going, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to get forward because of what he has done for me. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. That just means he hadn't arrived yet, right? He's not perfect. But one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. 
And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. You see it here? He says, where we've already got, hang on to that. Keep being that person. I haven't already arrived. There is no place where you get to you where you can say, listen, I'm at the upper levels. I'm the CEO. You don't get any higher than me. It doesn't work like that, does it? We're always moving forward and we're always imperfect. And so it's, but, but the way that, we, the way that we, we continue this journey, this walk toward the goal at the end is to hang on to what we have and keep fighting to go forward, right? What happens if you let go of what you have? You go backwards. So he says, look, we have to take what we have attained so far and actually live it. Don't go backwards. All right, let's go on. Brethren, join him, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So he starts by saying, listen, one of the ways that we run this race, that we walk uh, and continue to seek this goal at the end is each other, right? That's the unity idea that he's been dealing with all throughout this book. You've got to have each other. So pay attention to those who are also walking and also holding on, and they can encourage you. Pay attention and walk with them, but recognize that not everybody's doing that. Not everybody's walking the same direction. Might look like it. But not everybody's going the same direction. Not everybody has the same goal. Some people have a goal, whatever makes them, whatever takes care of them. Whatever pleases them. He calls it their God is their belly. Okay, that's not a literal belly, is it? It's talking about appetites, right? So whatever makes them happy, whatever pleases them is what they're going to do. And that's going to cause people to walk away. Because what pleases me isn't always the same thing that pleases God, is it? So if my God is what pleases me, then I'm not walking the same way that we're supposed to be walking. So recognize who's hanging on the same way and going the same way and walk with them. 20, here's why. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. That just means corruptible body. That it may be conformed to his glorious body or incorruptible body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Here's why you don't allow your appetites to control you, because you're not a citizen here. Well, that is one of the hardest things for Christians to, to grasp. You know, this attaining, this hanging on to, that's one of the hardest things, because we are here, aren't we? And, and we work here, and we live here, and we have our relationships here, and, and physically we're either healthy or we're not, and all of these things are every single day things that we deal with, right? I mean, we are here. So how is it then that our citizenship is not here? It's because all this stuff's just temporary. You know, it's the, I, I don't like to use it this way, but it's the best way I know how to explain it. It's the vacation you go on. You know, you go on a vacation to somewhere, it doesn't matter if it's exotic or not. You know, you take a vacation to Hawaii, you enjoy what's happening there and all of that, but eventually you're going to have to go home, aren't you? And so you're not going to, you know, invest in a car while you're there or those things like that, right? Because you're going to have to go back home. That's not home. 
Well, that's what it is here. We came here, we exist here, but the more we tie up into this world, the less likely we are to be successful when we go back home or go home. All right, let's keep going. Chapter 4. Therefore, this is because we attain the resurrection through Jesus Christ. We don't have this corruptible body anymore, but the incorruptible. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown... So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Do they matter to him? I've said it so many times, and and even as we started this book, I said it. His prayer life, everybody he writes to, he talks about how much he prays for them, right? Why would he pray for them so much? They matter to him. They matter to him. And so he says, listen, I've written all this stuff I've already written, and some things he's going to write now that are even a little more blunt. I've written all of this because I want you, like me, to recognize where we're going. And don't get so tied up. How does he rejoice in a prison? Because that's not home. He knows where he's going. And so I'm just saying all of this because I want, you to, I want you to attain that. You are my joy. You are my crown. You are the ones that matter to me. So I'm writing all this to help you get to the same goal I'm going to. Verse 2. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche... To be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now there are several people that are mentioned there. First you have two women who evidently matter to Paul and have worked with him somewhere. These are people who have either traveled with him or they have specifically helped him. They have been very close to him personally. And now they're the problem. They're creating the conflict in the church in Philippi. They are the ones that are identified that he's had to say so much about unity about. They just can't get along. Is it possible that there are times that people that are good, sincere, honest, religious people can have problems with each other? And sometimes those problems get to where we have a hard time dealing with them. And they spread into the church. So he says, I'm pleading with you. Be united. And then he says, my fellow worker. That guy's an unnamed guy. Don't know who that is. But it is somebody who evidently was around when they were around with Paul. Who would have an influence on them. And he's challenging this person to step up and help them. My question is, why hadn't he done it already? I got an answer. We're always afraid, aren't we? How about this? He, he knows both of them, doesn't he? Because that's what Paul has identified him here as. So he's probably worked with a fellow worker, right? He's worked with Paul probably when they did too. He's close to both of them. So which side do you choose? And if you choose side, what happens to the other one? And if you choose this side, what happens to the other one? That's why he hadn't stepped up yet. So Paul says, step up and help them. They need to be united, but they need help. So you step up and help them. And remember the others who have served with them. These are, these are important ladies. Keep reading. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So that's a passage we all know. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And he repeats it just to emphasize it. And then he tells you how. How? Or well not how yet. Uh, He tells them what it means. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Does it mean go around smiling all the time? No. Happiness is an emotion. That's not what joy is. Joy is a state of existence. 
Happiness is an emotion. Happiness works when I get up and I feel good this morning, right? And then tomorrow when I get up and I don't feel so good, I'm not so happy, right? You know what we call that? You got up on the wrong side of the bed, right? That's the happiness thing. Joy isn't, isn't flexible like that. Joy is what I have chosen to be. And the reason I have chosen to be this is because this is not my home. This is temporary. Something past this is mine. And nobody can take that away from me. So I'm going to exist here. And when I exist here in that state, that has an effect on the people around me. Right? So people see that kind of person. Keep reading. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I know that's a passage I talk about a lot, and that's because that's a passage I struggle with. Okay, It's really easy for us to say, don't worry about that. Right? It's really easy for us to say, what he says is, don't be anxious. You know, don't worry about it. Okay, well, this is happening in my life right now. Well, don't worry about it. Oh, great, thanks. That helped me out a lot, right? That's not what he says here. He doesn't say, quit worrying about it. He tells us how to quit worrying. And the how that we quit worrying is learn to give it to him and leave it there. And when I can give it to him and leave it there, then I have a peace that, uh, I always quote that from the King James, that passeth understanding. In other words, I can go through all the conflict and all the struggle with a different in a different way than everybody else. Everybody out there in the world, they see what you're going through, and they look at you and think, how are they getting through that like that? Well, because that's not under my control. I gave that to God. And I'm still going to go through it the same way I would have anyway. I'm still going to have the struggles and the conflict and whatever's along in this journey, but it's not mine to handle anymore. It's His. So I'll give it to Him, and I'll go through it however I've got to go through it. That's how you get rid of anxiety, and that's how you gain peace. Now, if you figure out how to do that, I'd like for you to help me with it. Right? But it's, it's true, isn't it? Okay, let's keep going. That's how Paul's in this prison cell, right? He's not worried. Oh, wait, he also said not just, uh, not just uh, pray about it, but prayer, supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Okay. I'll tell this the other day. Uh, it's been a while now. You know, I've been going through these tests for a long time. Uh, they started last July. So uh, one of the things I pray when I pray, like before a meal or something, uh, in our home is to say, you know, what I'm thankful for. Those are those are my thankful prayers. And so my thankful prayers always talk about things like, you know, our home and our family and friends and our health. And uh, one night my wife says, I, I'm, I'd like for your health to be better. <laughs> And I agree with that, but do I already have a lot? So we've got to be thankful for where we are too, right? And he's going to talk about that now. Keep reading. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's how you keep this joyful attitude. You focus on this positive stuff. And you give the bad stuff to God. And you're thankful for what you have. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. It's not a statement. It's not saying, God, I'm giving this to you. It's doing it. I can't just say, God, this problem's too much for me. Here you go, you have it. And then I go carry it with me right on down the road. I didn't give it to him, did I? I said the words. I didn't give it to him. 
But if I can give it to him and actually do it, then I can walk in peace. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you were you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. So this is where he's explaining what all this peace means to him, how how he gets there or what it what it accomplishes. So he says, look, I'm thankful that you sent me the support to help me. Right. They sent him money, food, whatever they sent him. He's thankful that they sent it. Not that they didn't want to do it before, but they just didn't have the chance. Right now, look at this. Not that I speak in regard to need. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That last verse is a motivational poster. But there's a context. The context isn't, I can motivate you to accomplish anything at work because you can do all things in Christ. You can jump over that building if you want to because you can do all things in Christ. That's not what that verse is talking about. What he's saying here is, this is where my peace comes from. I give all this temporary stuff to God and I've learned to be content wherever I am. In fact, I like the way he says this here because sometimes we read content and we think what we think in our mind is passive. You know, we think, okay, I'm just going to sit back because whatever God's given me is what he's given me and I'm going to be happy with it. And if he changes that someday, he changes that someday. That's not what he said. He said, I have learned in every situation both to be in need and what? What? Read it again. I know how to be abased. I know what I've done. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and hungry. Abound and suffer. Okay, to be content, he's happy with what he has. Does that mean he wouldn't work for more? No, that doesn't mean he doesn't want out of prison. That doesn't mean he's not serving God. He's trying to be successful, but his life's not dependent on that. His peace is not dependent on that. His peace is dependent on his God, who's already blessed him more than he deserves, right? Okay, let's finish this up. We're almost out of time. Oh, and that's what he, that, the way he does that? Christ. I can do all things through Christ. That's how he deals with every situation. Abounding, hungry, whatever it is, the way that he's content there is, he trusts in God. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. So he's, again, thankful for what they've, how they've blessed him. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only... For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So he says, look, you guys have been helping me all along. When there wasn't anybody else helping, you were helping me. That's, I mean, that's why they're so close, right? Or why they're helping, because they're so close. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He says, look, I am so thankful for what you blessed me with, but it's not because I wanted it. It's because I want you to be a part of this work. They have a part in his work. You know, the Great Commission is obviously our, our marching orders, and I emphasize the importance of what that means is the way that I live here has an influence on the people around me. Where I am in life is where I can be an influence in spreading the gospel, right? 
But does that mean that I can't be an influence somewhere else in the world by helping somebody else along the way? It doesn't mean that, does it? In fact, I can. In fact, we do, don't we? We have mission sites that we send support to every month, don't we? And why? Is it because they're in need? Nope. It's because we want the gospel spread there. Are they in need? Yes. But that's not why we send it. We send it because we want the gospel spread. And so we participate in that work. Okay, last part. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's just a little closing statement that has a big impact. Caesar's household? This guy has actually converted members of the Roman ruling family? The emperors who are going to claim themselves to be gods? And some of their family has been converted. Is there anybody that is beyond the reach of the gospel by your determination? If they're beyond the reach, it's because they chose it, right? It's because their soul, their heart was hard. Not because the gospel can't reach them. Okay, let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here today and study your word. And we're so thankful for the message that you leave for us. We're so thankful for the encouragement that we gain, the strength that we can we can have to continue our walk with you help us to do that help us to honor you to glorify you not to trust in ourselves forgive us where we fail you in christ's name amen